Welcome to the Remote CEO Show. My name is De Niro Bartolini, AKA De Niro B. I'm an acclaimed business coach and my moonshot is to change the face of work and business forever. With each episode, we bring you some of the most inspiring and insightful interviews with six, seven, eight, and nine figure entrepreneurs to crack the code on how to build your remote empire and have fun while doing it. Thanks for stopping by and let's get started. What's going on, CEOs? De Niro B here with another episode of the Remote CEO Show. Today, we're here with Robin White. Robin is a dynamic and inspiring public speaker, author, and international business coach. He has a passion for helping others succeed and reach their full potential, and his energy and enthusiasm are contagious. With over 20 years of experience as an entrepreneur and business coach, Robin has a wealth of knowledge and practical insights that he will share with our audience today. I'm very excited for this chat. Let's get right into it. Robin, welcome to the Remote CEO Show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Daniero. Thank you for having me on the show. Absolutely. And I'm very excited for this chat. I ask every single one of my guests to tell me what they were doing before they became an entrepreneur. So what is your story? What made you become an entrepreneur? Gosh, you, you've taken me back about 20 years in the first um, question, Daniero. So I um, <laughs> I, I, was at, I was at university, actually, and um, I'd been working part-time for a business during during the four years I spent doing, getting my degree. And um, I basically, the, the guy who I worked for, so we used to manufacture medical equipment, and I was sort of building systems and things like that for the business. And uh, I realized that he was exceptional at you know, coming up and designing products and things like that, but just utterly abysmal, you know, terrible when it came to business um, and made awful decisions, spent all the money. And it was always just a bit of a struggle, you know, when I was working there and I thought, I reckon I could do a, a better job than that. So um, I actually took a, a few months out and um, started buying and selling laptops. So I was sort of doing a bit of a bit of a side hustle, I suppose, at the same time. And then uh, that evolved. A friend of mine said, oh, you do computer stuff. He was building websites. Should we merge and start a business up? So that was back in 2004 um, when I set up my first business. And yeah, I haven't looked back. That is fantastic. I know a lot of people start because they just can't seem to really understand the employee life because they have so many great ideas. They want to implement so many great things in the business they work for. And then because they can't do that, they decide to take you know their own path to start their own path. And that's fantastic. So can you tell our audience what your business does and what you guys are all about? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, now um, I'm the founder of Fearless Business, which is a coaching practice. We help mostly other coaches, consultants, and freelancers solve their pricing issues. So I'm a bit of a, a numbers geek. So I, I've always done things that are technical. I was a systems analyst in the job. I ran a web design business for 12 years. And then uh, even when I've stepped into business coaching, we do a bit of mindset, but it's mostly just making sure that people are really clear on what their offer is. Um, so we kind of package up their service nicely for them. We help them to um, articulate the value around their offer so that they're really clear on what the outcomes are, which they produce for their clients. As a result of that, uh, we then have the pricing conversation, which ultimately leads to them charging sometimes two, three, four, five times what they were previously charging at, say, an hourly rate. 
Um, and it's fantastic because it means that like for me, there's loads of different ways to to grow a business, you know, from a marketing perspective, from a sales perspective, all sorts of different ways. But for me, if you get the pricing right, you can literally be making double the amount of money the very next day you make that decision. So pricing is hugely, hugely important. Um, and and there's no excuses in business. Everything in business revolves around numbers. It's all about making profit and building a sustainable recurring revenue for your business. So uh, so that's the approach we take. And there's no, if people say, oh, I don't get numbers, like you probably should reconsider having a business because everything in business is all about knowing the numbers. Absolutely. And so there's a lot to unpack in what you talked about. So I have a couple of follow-up questions. The first one's about pricing. And the second one is really about numbers at large within the business. But let's start with pricing. You talked about coaching, coaches, consultants, and and freelancers. And so what are you seeing right now in the market, especially, and I'm talking about right now, we're entering hopefully not as bad as we think it's going to be, but a recession. And I know a lot of people are starting to freak out about spending money, but at the same time, I know that uh, business must go on and a lot of people are still buying. So what are you telling your clients and what are you doing yourself to make sure that you're not maybe overpricing your services too much to the point where people are not going to buy them in this uncertain times, but at the same time, keep profits very good and 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 really run your business the best of your ability? Yeah, great question. Um, I mean, I suppose it's probably easiest to start with one of the mistakes I see people make during, you know, when there's an economic downturn. So the biggest mistake I, I see people make is they discount their offer thinking that that's going to somehow attract a flood of new business into them. So new clients. And it actually has the opposite um, effect. So what the signal you send to your, your market when you discount your product is, we've got loads of these things, come and buy our stuff. Um, but if you compare that to, say, the likes of like your supermarket, which maybe has a two for one deal on baked beans, mm -hmm. supermarkets have something called latent demand, which means that people come into their shop to buy bread and milk. They look, you know, as they're walking down the, the aisles, they see oh, two for one on beans. I'll buy some of those. Mm -hmm. There's a discount on beans because there is so much of them. That's why they've got to get rid of their beans before they all go out of date. You know, mm -hmm. so we, we don't want to behave like a supermarket. Small business owners don't have you know, latent demand in the same way that big supermarkets do. We don't have people walking through our shop. So that like a discount isn't the thing which is going to attract buyers. A better way to think about it is um, pricing wise, you've got to price, set your prices so that economically it stacks up for your business. So a good example of this um, would be something along the lines of if, if let's take a I don't know, um, a coach, for example, if their goal was to make $100,000 a year mm -hmm. and they were thinking of maybe charging $1,000, say, for their um, their coaching program, mm -hmm. the first question I would ask, I'd just divide the two numbers together and say, great, so you've got the capacity to work with 100 clients this year. And immediately the international sign of distress would go up and go, oh, no, I couldn't possibly work with that many clients. So it's okay, well, what's your capacity then? What? How many clients could you work with? And maybe they settle on just 20 clients. That's what the capacity would be working with clients week in, week out. So all of a sudden, we've got a huge shortfall if they want to charge $1,000 for their thing. Their own capacity is only 20K. So what we then have to look at is, um, well, how can we create enough value in the, the program which you're putting together, the product which you've created, that maybe is actually worth $5,000, not $1,000? Mm -hmm. So you can still achieve your financial objectives, but work within the capacity constraints which you've got. 
And there's often a lot, a lot of, there's a lot again to unpack in that because a lot of the pricing conversation is mostly about mindset and their own inter- internal value system and various things like that. Mm-hmm. But once they just get the idea about how the numbers work and how it can economically stack up for their business, actually we're, we're already halfway there mindset wise. Then it's just a matter of getting out and validating that new price point. Mm. That's a very interesting interesting point. Uh, going back to what you were saying about numbers earlier and making sure that numbers make sense and even your your goals, your your income goals, your profit goals still make sense. Uh, before we get to numbers, again, I still have a question regarding that. I want to ask you a question about what you talked about right now, which is uh, not being afraid of charging more. But what I, I've noticed in my business and my clients' businesses as well is that it's all about the types of people that you speak to because some people, of course, cannot possibly afford, you know, uh, maybe not even $1,000, but let's <laughs> let's leave that aside. But $5,000, $6,000, $10,000. So what is a recommendation can you give our, that you can give to our listeners uh, when it comes to looking for the right clients when they are you know, working to figure out their own pricing? Yeah, great question. So uh, people, when they look at their niche, they only tend to kind of look at their ideal client first. Mm -hmm. And that's that's one part of it. There's actually two Mm -hmm. other niches which sit alongside that. So you have your market niche, you have your product niche, and then you have your pricing niche. So if we focus on the market niche to begin with, um, this kind of initially there's three questions which you need to ask about that that ideal client. So the first one is, do I love working with this client? That's pure and simple. Okay. The second second one is, do can I get a great result working for this client? Mm-hmm. You know. And then the third one is, can this client afford to pay me? Mm-hmm. Now the thing is, there's eight billion people on this planet, and you know, hundreds of millions of businesses which people have set up. So if you can't find twenty to fifty clients, for example, that mm-hmm. are able to pay a certain amount. I'd say that probably you're not looking in the right places for those dream clients. Um, Or or you've got to restructure your offer in such a way that you can kind of, you know, service it at scale, but then be able to kind of price yourself into a more affordable market. Mm -hmm. Um, But getting that ideal client sort of base uh, right in the first place is super, super important. Once you've identified that, you and and by the way, you know, there's lots of different ways to kind of um, choose the ideal client. So one, one is like the obvious one is demographics. So what size businesses do you work with? Um, what type of people do you work with geographically? Where are those businesses located? And they, those kind of will give you indicators as to like the amount of wealth in that particular sector, that area. Um, the second layer is then psychographics. Like how do those people show up? How do they behave? What sort of things do they do? Um, again, that gives us clues as to um, what sort of products people are investing in, um, which is quite important as well, and how much money they spend when they're investing in those things. The final one, which is like really interesting um, for me, is um, I call it the identity layer. So we've done demographic psychographics, and then the identity layer is like, well, people are attracted to similar people to them. So uh, you know, and generally, when you hang out with similar people, they've got similar sorts of levels of wealth, they've got similar sorts of businesses, they've got similar sorts of ideas. Um, so that means if you're if if you find somebody who's at a, you know if you find somebody who's into surfing and cycling like I am, or they have some kind of an edge to them in terms of their business. They're generally a good fit for fearless business, for example. Um, so price isn't necessarily too big an issue to them. They just want to work with somebody they get on with. So that's your ideal client. And then you move into the product niche. And I think this is where it gets really quite interesting. Because again, some people go out there and they just try and do be all things to all people and 
like collect as many clients as they possibly can do uh, through like, you know, we've heard of like multi-service um, marketing agencies, for example, you do graphic design and websites and podcast interviews, and they do all these like multitude of different things. Whereas actually, if they, if all they did was, you know, one thing, one product, and they did it really well for that one specific type of client, which they worked with, then all of a sudden people will start to label them as an expert in that niche. Yeah. And I don't know about you, Daniero, when you work with experts, generally speaking, they're more expensive than somebody who is like a jack of all trades. Yep. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. It does make a hundred percent sense. And so my question to you is, you said it's something that really stood out. You said people are attracted to people that are similar to them. And so let's use this as an example. If uh, you have, like, I know a lot of coaches listen to this podcast. So let's say you are a coach um, and you have maybe a background in finance or a background in marketing. It doesn't really matter, but you want to choose a niche. And so at this point, you, of course, know, I made this huge mistake back like seven, eight years ago, uh, choosing like some very, very, not, not small niches, huge niches, but with people that literally had no money, almost like students or whatnot. And so I made that huge mistake. Now we work with uh, professionals. So, you know, lawyers, accountants, and so on and so forth. But of course, these individuals, especially the ones that have had a business for quite a long time, and they have the disposable income to buy these services they're going to look at your brand and they're not most likely going to work with smaller businesses. So my question is directed to you, but it's for, but it's for the new coach, the new entrepreneur that's starting the business. So how can we make sure that someone that is still new to the game is still able to portray a good image of themselves enough so that the their target market is going to identify uh him or her as you know first off credible second of all as a person that it's you know uh like you said similar enough in a way to start working with them does that make sense <laughs> yeah 100 um so i mean i, I there's there's I, my first recommendation be go and find like five to 10 people who you aspire to be, who you would aspire your business to be, you know, as an entrepreneur um, and just see what they're getting up to. See what sorts of things that you look at and you go, oh, they've got 50 Google reviews. They must be, you know, so if they've got some credibility and authority in their space, like see what it is that they're doing and see what you feel comfortable replicating. Do they have books, for example, are they guests on podcasts? Do they have their own podcast? Have they got an extensive blog you know with tons of article helpful articles about the product or service which they're selling so these these authority pieces these marketing assets are massively massively important for any business um because what they do is they they raise the credibility and authority and then obviously somebody starting out is not going to have those marketing assets um and the goal is we'll set yourself some targets over the next i don't know uh, 12 months 18 months to start to build these marketing assets up I call them BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals, Daniero. Yeah. Um, things like, um, you know, uh, could we get guest uh, guest appearances on 25 to 50 uh, podcasts over the next 12 months? Mm -hmm. Could we find 12 conferences that would book us to speak, um, you know, industry conferences? And maybe we have to pull a few strings and leverage a few contacts to get onto stage. But whilst we're on stage, can we then get some photos or videos taken of us speaking, you know, live? Mm -hmm. uh, could we work on a, building out a 20 to 30,000 word book over the course of the next 12 months and then self-publish it? Mm -hmm. So all of these things, like 
if you look at it in 12 months time, they're big audacious goals and it might overwhelm some people. But if, if the first goal is like to get one Google review, to get one podcast interview, to get one speaking engagement, mm-hmm. anybody who is starting out in business, I would hope would be tenacious enough to be able to book one of those. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You said something very interesting. You said book. I just published a book in February. We had amazing reviews. Uh, it took me probably six years to plan in my head and just 30 days to write <laughs> because I had I had done all the research ahead and it, uh, and it was a lot of fun. It was a long process. And I have to say it's the best business uh, kind of card I've ever had in my life. Just sending it out to to prospects and, and getting them to really either read it or not, but just having in their hand, knowing that again, uh, I am an expert in what I do. And can you give us some tips? I was looking at your book. It has hundreds, hundreds of reviews. I'm not kidding. Uh, our listeners at home, I'm not kidding. You can go and check it out. It's called Take Your Shot. You guys can go on Amazon even and have a look. Uh, how did you get so many people to read reviews? I know that's something that uh, a lot of people are afraid of writing the book, doing all this work, and then it falls flat and nobody reads it, or at least nobody's going to go and talk about it. Yeah, I mean, it, there was a very sort of commercial decision behind like, look, take your shot when I wrote it and launched it and things like that. First of all, it was a story that I, I wanted to tell. As you, If you've read it, it's it's kind of more of like a first person parable. So it's actually told as a story about one of my clients. But um, so I was quite passionate about the topic for a start. But no, I went through a proper sort of product launch process. Um, my goal initially in the first month was to get 200 reviews for the book, which I think I just about achieved. It probably took a little bit longer than that, maybe five or six weeks. Um, but then part of my marketing strategy, and this is where books are like so incredibly powerful. And it's probably a slight tangent, but hopefully it's good for the podcast. But um, uh, imagine it when you were writing that book, Daniela, if you spent like 30 to 50 hours on social media, like tweeting and being on LinkedIn and stuff like that, those, so that, that social media, that marketing activity has like a half-life to it. So you post something and then like an hour later, it's disappeared off the feeds, never to be seen again in many cases on social media. But whereas you compare that to a book, you spend 30 to 50 hours like writing a book. And once that asset is built, that marketing asset is built, well, it, it stands the test of time. It's just a digital or physical asset that, you can sweat, you can, you know, you don't have to rewrite a book every time you want to give it to somebody. So I set up a goal to give away 50 to 100 copies of that book um, each and every month, um, you know, to people who come into my world, like you said, it's the best business card out there. Um, and then as a part of that process, there's a bit of a marketing campaign. But when somebody applies for a copy of the book, I send them an email 30 days later and just say, hey, would you mind leaving a review? So there's a, there's a bit of automation in there. Um, there's a there's a bit of a marketing strategy behind it as well. I also know the value in the book, like quite often people read it. Um, some people can, can execute the tips and advice that's in the book for themselves. They don't need any help from a coach or an expert to, they just get on and, and do, do the, you know, take part in the five steps in the book. Other people, they read the book and then they come back to me and say, oh, we read the book, we understand the principles, but we're struggling to implement it. Can you help? So it's, it's a, it, it makes sense as a marketing asset to, to give those away. It's very little effort to give them away. Um, and then more often than not, well, it's measurable for every hundred books I give away. Typically, there's sort of, you know, one, two or three of those people potentially become clients, you know, in the long run. It certainly starts conversation, bring pulls people into my world created some amazing partnerships, you know, um, with, uh, you know, YouTube influencers, with entrepreneurs across the globe. 
um, as a result of having that book. And I'd say probably a lot of my success, not necessarily Take a Shock, I had another book before that as well. But the first book I wrote definitely opened up a huge number of doors from a, a podcast and speaking perspective. So it's, it's just a great asset to have all around. That's absolutely true. And as a matter of fact, I want to add one thing. You kind of touched upon it, but I want to really like drill this into our listeners' head. You can turn your book into really like a uh, like uh, a step-by-step framework that then you're going to use for your coaching as well. That's what I did. We build remote teams for our clients uh, from startups all the way down to professionals. And what we've noticed is that when our prospects get their book, even if they don't read it, they go through the table of contents, they go through each one of the steps of the framework. When we get on a sales call, we call them consultation calls, they understand what this call is about. We don't have any more that question like, okay, tell me what you do, or I'm not sure I understand what you do because they have the book. And, and again, like for at least for me, the numbers make sense as well, because I can buy the book for $4 as an author and send it out. And all altogether, maybe it's going to cost me $5 and 50 cents or something. I do that, you know, 20, 30, 40 times I get 10% generally like calls booked. And then out of those about two to three can turn into clients. And again, it's just a great way to get your name out there, make sure that people understand what you do. And uh, like you said, uh, just get people kind of indoctrinated into your system 100%. So Robin, let's talk about numbers. It's something I told you I wanted to ask you from the very first question. You said something that really stood out to me. You said, if you're afraid of numbers, maybe you should reconsider owning a business. I know a lot of entrepreneurs that say that they are unemployable. And so that is the reason why they want to open a business. That's good up to maybe 50 or 60% of the reason why you should open a business. The rest, it should be because you're obsessed really with this thing that you're building. You can't just say you're unemployable because you don't want to work. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. There's still a lot of work to be done. Actually, there's a lot more work to be done. And so if we were to look at habits, I'm huge in habits because here we can talk about what you can do, but then people are going to be left with that question. When can I do this? When should I do this? And so if you were to look at your growth as an entrepreneur, you probably had ups and downs like anybody. And so let's talk about the ups. When you were having those ups and your business was growing, can you tell us a bit, your, uh, a bit more about your habits about when you were looking at the numbers, how often were you looking at the numbers? What kind of things were you looking out for? Was it just profits or also top line? Were you looking at expenses? Of course, is a general question. Like what was your schedule looking like when it comes to finances? Yeah, finances. I'm I'm obsessive. Uh, pro probably to a point I need some help, Daniela. <laughs> <laughs> no, literally, literally daily. I um, well, I go by the mantra that it's again the three the the magic of threes here, isn't it? But turnover is vanity, profit is sanity, and cash is king. So, 
Um, I'm I'm obsessive when it comes to ensuring that one, there's cash in the business. So mm-hmm. I, in an ideal world, you want to get to a point whereby you've generated three to six months worth of your operating overheads. And those are safely stowed away in a savings account somewhere okay. in a rainy day fund. So that worst case scenario, you've always got something to fall back on. Yep. It is, again, there's so many like small business owners who money comes in, money goes out. They, they always say they've got a cash flow problem, right? But it's, yeah. never, it's not a cash flow problem at all because cash money flows in flows straight back out again they've actually got two problems one is making more money and Mm -hmm. the second problem then is keeping that money so when it comes to making more money i kind of touched upon that earlier on if you get your pricing right for your products and prove your sales techniques and you get good you know build good marketing assets making money shouldn't really be too challenging but it's the keeping bit which i find really fascinating for a lot of um, small businesses because what one of the things i've noticed is as their revenue starts to track up and they get the growth um, you know, which everybody wants, you know, that that slow upward trajectory and growth of, of, of revenue, they allow then their costs to start to track up with that. So then the moment there's a dip in their revenue, um, you know, then all of a sudden they're into losses. And typically those losses can be quite remarkable because they've allowed their cost to creep up so much. So it's a combination of making sure, yep, we're making some money. When we start to grow, don't overinvest. Just make sure you're you're investing just enough money uh, to to have a sustainable um, business, um, yep. Yep. you know, and then uh, ensure that you've got enough profit coming through that as well that you can start to build up that rainy day fund. So, the the book I would recommend actually, if anybody's interested in sort of learning more about just the basic sort of concepts around finances, is called Profit First by an author called Mike McCallavitz. Absolutely amazing book, like just to understand the basic basics of business finances. Absolutely. I love the profit first system. We have a profit first uh, accountant working uh, with us um, at, at my business. And it is something really that uh, a lot of people struggle with because they have that mentality of I got to invest more money to make more money, right? Which is good. You want to be that kind of person. You want to have that risky, you know, like risk taking attitude when it comes to growth. But at the same time, like you said, everything needs to be balanced. Um, I know a lot of people that uh, grew too fast. Actually, I grew too fast at the very beginning uh, to put this into perspective back in the 20. Uh, like I, I haven't had a business for 20 years like you, but I had it for about 10, 12 years. And I remember back in 05, uh, um, sorry, in 2015, I was selling on Amazon and within literally like three weeks of starting to sell on Amazon, I, I had my first $25,000 month, uh, mm-hmm. basically my second month selling products. And so from then on, I was like, well, I need top of the line everything like software, all sorts of automation software, all sorts of like coaching, all sorts of this and that, blah, 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 blah. Within two to three months, I had made a very bad decision to order more product that was actually seasonal. Didn't end up selling it at all. We had this huge loss. I had all the software that I had bought. It was a disaster. Thankfully, thankfully, I was able to, you know, not not declare bankruptcy, But from that one mistake, I remember learning how to bootstrap and learning how to work with a much smaller budget. Of course, for our listeners at home, you can't not compromise the quality of your services. Meaning, like, for example, when I had an agency, we used to uh, have email marketing experts. And, you know, at a certain point, you can just like, not send out emails for your clients anymore. You still have to have those people or at least yourself invest your time to do that. But once the quality of your services 
are you know up to par with the industry and you're doing well, you don't need all those extra you know frills in your business because that's what's going to really like eat up your profits and really like if 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 you're not going to be smart about it, you're gonna have one or two bad months. You're gonna be you know back on the curb <laughs> with almost no business at all. Um, been, been there, got the t-shirt, Danny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, you know, when I first started the coaching business, I mean, that are uh, my my this, the coaching space is full of people like you know scaling coaches and got to go from seven figures, eight figures, twenty figure businesses and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> and there was a very short period of time. This is probably going back about five years now, so sort of a couple of years into the um, into the practice, where I kind of got just caught, a bit caught up in that. And um, so the first mistake I made, I was spending money on ads, and it got to the point where I was spending three thousand um, pounds a month on ads. Mm-hmm. And then I went through the warm, warmest audience in my sort of audiences and um, couldn't figure out why, what was going wrong, but the sales just completely went off a cliff. Um, and it took me three months to figure it out. So that was a £9,000 mistake. Um, but I learned, you learn from it, don't you? And then the other mistake I made was um, I didn't know what I know now about sort of the power of all of the marketing assets, which I created for myself. And which, But most importantly, which ones to double down on. Um, so I had a... Um, uh, an employee who was kind of the social media marketing manager and which which was a shrewd decision at the time that she took a lot of work off my plate which is fantastic mm-hmm. um you know and we we were doing all of the social media content but I noticed like the audiences weren't growing as much as we'd like we weren't getting as much engagement and things like that and um uh it was it, for me it was more so than just the added stress of then having to manage somebody when some things aren't necessarily working as you expect so so you know, uh, and this isn't a word of caution for some people. It works incredibly well, but for me, it just, it just it didn't work out, but I've managed to get my coaching practice down to a point where I probably it's optimized down. So I'm probably doing maybe eight to 10 hours worth of coaching a week. Mm-hmm. Absolute max. That's my committed work time where I have to show up and be like top of my game. Yeah. The rest of the time is mine to, to do as I please. But when I had this person working in the full, the business full time, I just found I was spending so much time to manage her and like just teach her and, monitor stuff and everything else all of a sudden my committed work hours have like doubled or tripled each week just because I've got this one hire in there and one of the things I've learned um she's she's now gone and it was all it's mutual it was all done you know um uh you know everybody was happy at the end of it it was fine Mm -hmm. but one of the things I've learned now I work a lot with associate coaches I work a lot with VAs um I find VAs and coaches who specialize in very niche areas of the business where I need the most amount of support if I'm a bit light in terms of skills time or knowledge um and actually it's it's just fantastic because it means like what you know rather than having a full-time employee trying to get them to do all sorts of different things well I, I might have you know several VAs who specialize in one specific area and they can do it in half the time they can just run with it I don't need to manage them I don't need to you know spend loads of extra time on these tasks so that that now is kind of my model. I call it I call it having a mighty small business. It's like little of me, but then there's an awesome team of like VAs, associate coaches who just make me look good. Yes, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I like that. Like I was telling you before the beginning of uh, actually, we weren't even recording yet. I love having that nimble business that you can kind of uh, kind of the size of the business kind of grows based on necessity and it's not something that you're committed to that. Like I said earlier, if you had an office, huge overhead, a lot of full-time staff members that could cause a lot of stress 
in in any in any economic change, whether it's growing too fast or or of course sales are not coming in. Um, Robin, I am sure my listeners will want to know more about you, your book, your business, and everything that you do. So before I actually ask you this question, I ask you one last question is, is there anything exciting that you want to share with our with our audience that's happening in your business in the next few months? Yeah, well, I've I've got um uh, this uh, it was on my vision board. There's a fantastic um YouTuber called Ali Abdul. I don't know if you've ever come yeah, across him. Yeah, of course. But... I absolutely love him. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Well, like, he he interviewed me a couple of weeks ago for his deep dive podcast, oh. and that's hopefully coming out over the next couple of months. Which I'm just I'm. It was on my vision board at the start of this year, and I've I've known him for a while actually through mutual contacts. So, um, I was really humbled when I got the phone call to be invited. He's a doctor. It's a by trade, right? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. He's he's fully qualified doctor here in the UK. He started doing YouTube as a bit of a side hustle just to pay his way through his medical school. And um, I met him just as he was in the final year that he was completing his um, uh, his medical, his studies. And um, uh, he was kind of in that very difficult, like making an ethical decision between, do I become a doctor? Do I do this YouTube thing full time? Um, and there was a few conversations we had about sort of um, productizing what he, he does from a YouTube perspective, turning it into courses and things like that, mm-hmm. talking about the prices for those. And just uh, it's amazing in the last two years, he's actually gone from sort of doing a couple hundred thousand dollars, which is still remarkable. Now he's doing six million dollars a year in his businesses right. and he's got over a thousand people have done his course part time YouTube. Account. So, yeah, was, anyway, cut a long story short, yeah, I was absolutely. chuffed to be invited onto his podcast. I'm excited for that to come out. Absolutely, absolutely, and I'm sure my listeners want to know, uh, will listen to his podcast as well. But again, I want to know where my audience can find you, so they can learn more about you, your business, your book, and everything that you do. Yeah, absolutely. So LinkedIn's the best place. If you go and um, send me a connection request, if you've got any questions, so search for Robin Waite with an E on the end of it, W-A-I-T-E, and ho- hopefully De Niro will share a link as well to LinkedIn. Uh, I always reply to messages and connection requests on there as well, unless you're going to like r- pitch me something really hard, cold. I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, <I> do. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, and then I've also, um, Daniela, organized, I've got a handful of signed copies of Take Your Shot as well. So if your listeners want to apply for one of those um, copies, they go to fearless.biz forward slash TYS for Take Your Shot, all lowercase. Yeah, um, there's a, a short form in there to fill out. And then I'll I'll post those anywhere in the world except for South Africa. And the reason for that is anything I've ever sent to South Africa has either been returned or stolen. So wow. the postal service is clearly rubbish there. That's, that's unfortunate. Well, Thank you so much again, Robin, for being at the Remote CEO Show. I'm looking forward to having you back in the future. And in the meantime, enjoy the rest of your day. Awesome. Thank you, Daniero. And this is it for today, CEOs. Thanks for staying with us until the end. Can I ask you a big favor? Can you please leave a review? I know the podcast app is not super straightforward. So if you don't know how to leave a review, just DM me on Instagram at B. D-E-N-I-E-R-O-B and I will send you the direct link to the review section and to show you my appreciation, I will answer any business question you ask me during that conversation. So thank you again and I will talk to you again soon.